0: Well, for the last month or so, I've been thinking a lot about uh, the state of affairs or the the time around his death. And uh, seeing that today is Easter Sunday means that it's the perfect time uh, to share with you what it is that I've learned. So that's what we're going to do here uh, this morning. So in preparation for that, let's pray. Father, thank you that We've had time already to uh, rejoice and to think about the fact that your Son, whom uh, you sent on our behalf, who died for our sins, uh, gave proof to that uh, through his resurrection. And uh, without the resurrection, there is no Christian faith. Without the resurrection, there is uh, no hope of eternal life uh, with you. And I pray that uh, that would be something that we would not only uh, consider uh, during this time or on uh, Easter Sunday, but something that we would uh, think about all the time, uh, the importance of this day and, again, the, the events surrounding uh, that day. Father, I pray that as uh, I attempt to discuss these things with your people now, that it would have uh, the impact that you intend your glory, and the glory of our Savior, the Lord Jesus Christ, the risen one. Amen. Well, what I'm going to talk about here this morning, um, it's really weird because uh, it was the result of a dream that I had. (laughs) Uh, Not that uh, what I'm going to talk about is prophetic in any way, and I don't mean it that way, please don't take it that way, but Uh, The subject matter was uh, actually inspired by a dream I had about a month ago. Uh, That dream uh, was in regard to, as I've already mentioned, the state of affairs uh, surrounding uh, the last uh, day, really, of Jesus' earthly uh, ministry. And in that sense, uh, what I've read about for many years in the Scripture all of a sudden came to life in this dream. I was, as I remember, one of Jesus' disciples, at least that was the sense that I got in this particular dream, is that, uh, is that I was there, uh, though I didn't see Jesus, what I did experience was being affected by what was taking place uh, because of his arrest and death. The dream uh, impacted me so much that when I woke up, which was about 3 in the morning, I went over to my phone, which is uh, in the kitchen, And I emailed myself the details of that dream uh, so that I could preach on it today because I felt that what it is that uh, I experienced in that dream and what it is that it made me think about uh, were things that are relevant not only to uh, our church and our lives today, uh, but also our belief uh, in the resurrection uh, as a whole. And when I say uh, it, what I'm talking about is the perspective or lessons that were gained through my dreamy consideration of that time and those verses that support it. So with that in mind, here's the title of our sermon for this morning. Three important points. Three important points. Three important points about the lowest point. Three important points About the lowest point, about the lowest point in Christian history, in Christian history. Three important points about the lowest point in Christian history. One more time, three important points about the lowest point in Christian history. And here is the first, what the majority of people, what the majority of people think, what the majority of people think is not the litmus test for truth, is not the litmus test for truth. What the majority of people think is not the litmus test for truth. What the majority of people, and uh, when I say majority of people, I'm speaking uh, most especially of those claiming to be Christian in the world today. What they think is not the litmus test for truth. In my dream, the thing that became most apparent, something that I'd, prior to that, not given much thought to, was how much Jesus' ministry at the end of his life must have felt like a total failure to his disciples. This was clearly the lowest point in his life and the lowest point in their life. It was the lowest point in all of Christianity. Christianity. And I remember during that time, in that dream, a feeling, a sense of that. That something that had started out so popular, so promising, so exciting, and packed with with people, was at the end down to a small few, running and hiding for their lives. As their once publicly proclaimed Messiah was being publicly humiliated as he hung naked and nailed to a wooden post outside the city, the place where the Romans put on display anyone viewed as a troublemaker or impersonating a king. It was the execution site for the city's worst fakes, worst phonies, and con men. The Bible says people laughed when they saw Jesus there. They laughed and they mocked him. Luke chapter 23. Luke chapter 23. Luke chapter 23, verses 35 and 36. And the people stood by watching, but the rulers scoffed at him. Literally, they laughed at him, saying, he saved others, let him save himself. If he is the Christ or Messiah of God, his chosen one. The soldiers also mocked him, coming up and offering him sour wine and saying, if you are the king of the Jews, save yourself. Mark chapter 15. Mark chapter 15 Similar words this time in relation to the guards. Mark chapter 15, verses 16 through 20. And the soldiers led him away inside the palace that is the governor's headquarters, and they called together the whole battalion, and they clothed him in a purple cloak and twisted together a crown of thorns. They put it on him, and they began to salute him. Hail, King of the Jews! They were striking his head with a reed and spitting on him and kneeling down in homage to him. And when they had mocked him, they stripped him of the purple cloak and they put on his own clothes and they led him out to crucify him. Paul says that Jesus' death in this way was in his day a stumbling block to people believing that he was really the Messiah or God. First Corinthians chapter 1, one. Corinthians chapter one. Verses eighteen or the beginning of eighteen, and then also twenty-two through twenty-three or twenty-two and twenty-three. For the word of the cross is folly to those who are perishing. Verse 22, for Jews demand signs and Greeks seek wisdom, but we preach Christ crucified, a stumbling block to Jews, folly, to Gentiles. The fact that Jesus died that way, an incredibly humiliating death, one reserved only for the true flakes of society, made him in his ministry, and anyone who was still following him look like a total joke. How could this be the guy? Or this, the true religion that gets you to heaven, how could that be the case? That was the sense that I got from this dream. The pressure that must have been on these first disciples, those who continued to follow Jesus, Try to imagine... They claimed to have the truth, but their leader was just hanging butt naked on a cross like a condemned criminal, like a total flake. Imagine what that would have been like being one of his disciples at that time. People seeing the one that you claimed as Lord and God in that state, hanging there, in that place. Recently we discussed how the first Christians were reviewed as, or, excuse me, referred to as a sect. And I told you that that term is better translated today by the word "cult." That too, then, is what Jesus' disciples had to endure. All of their family, all of their friends and the rest of the so-called Christian world believed that they were in a cult. They were in a cult and following the teachings of a guy who was, according to appearances, exposed as a phony. I remember waking up and feeling the weight of that, something that today is hard to comprehend given the success of Christianity in the world that we live in today. But back then, back then it wasn't that way. Everyone must have thought the disciples had lost their marbles. Why would you continue to follow a guy whose ministry went from tens of thousands of people to the majority leaving him and condemning him as fake? Why would you continue to be a part of something the rest of the Christian community viewed as a cult? How could something now so small, insignificant, be the real thing? According to Acts chapter 1 verse 15, there was, after this event, in all about 120 persons. From tens of thousands to a buck twenty. Not only that, but people wanted to kill them meaning the disciples. And by people, I mean both Christian and secular. John chapter 15. John chapter 15. Jesus says in verses 18 through 21, then again in verses 1 through 3 of chapter 16, if the world hates you, know that it has hated me before it hated you if you were of the world the world would love you as its own but because you are not of the world but i chose you out of the world therefore the world hates you the if has now become a certain reality remember the word that i say to you a servant is not greater than his master if they persecuted me They will also persecute you if they kept my word. They will also keep yours. But all these things they will do to you on account of my name because they do not know him who sent me. Skipping down to verse 1 of chapter 16, I have said all these things to you to keep you from falling away. They will put you out of the synagogues. Modern day translation, the churches. Indeed, the hour is coming when whoever kills you will think he is offering service to God. And they will do these things because they have not known the Father nor me. That who Jesus is talking about here includes the religious community is confirmed by 1522. If I had not spoken to them, so the they and the world that hates Jesus, the disciples, includes those that Jesus had spoken to, i.e. the religious community. That secular people would eventually get in on the hating and killing action is also confirmed by what happened during the neuronic persecution. Thousands of Christians brutally tortured and murdered barely 30 years after Jesus' death. So imagine that, what it must have felt like being so small, so many having already left you, people now claiming you're a cult, that you got it all wrong, that you're the ones with the wrong gospel, following the wrong God. Can you imagine? Beloved, to some degree, you can, you can. Many of these things experienced by the first disciples are what we here at this church experience. A small band of believers accused of being a cult by others following a Savior whose gospel is rejected by the majority claiming to follow God. Beloved, we are just like them, the first disciples. Those who stuck with Jesus when the rest of the religious community were rejecting Him. By the way, the reason they rejected Him then is the same as it is today. They hated His gospel. They wanted easy believism and Jesus preached faithful obedience to His law. They rejected the true Messiah and called his disciples a cult because they hated righteousness or the need to be practicing righteousness to get to heaven. John chapter 3, verse 19, light. John says, has come into the world speaking of Jesus. But people loved the darkness rather than the light. Why? Because their works, their deeds were Which brings me back to my point. What the majority of people think, beloved, most especially those claiming to follow God or be the religious community of our day is definitely not the litmus test for truth. Not then, not today. Truth, in other words, is not determined by them or their opinions as to what is acceptable or constitutes following God. In the words of Jesus from John 7, 24, we are not to judge according to appearances, but according to right judgment, that which is consistent with the Scriptures, and that again irrespective of what the rest of the world thinks. That too I remember waking up and feeling. So don't be duped. Remember what determines the truth and ignore what doesn't. A dream caused me to realize just how special what we have here really is. In many ways, it is just like what the first disciples had and experienced. But if you ask me, that's good company. That's the kind of Christianity we should want to be associated with the first disciples. It may look like a failure to the world, including uh, once more the rest of Christianity, but it is just the opposite. It is instead the most special place on planet Earth. Just like it was. Just like it was back then. Number two. Number two. The most important things. The most important things can be the hardest or least desirable. The most important things. The most important things can be the hardest, can be the hardest or least desirable, or least desirable. The most important things can be the hardest, can be the hardest or least desirable. And what I mean by the most important things are the things that will have the greatest impact on your life and the life of others. Those are the things that can be the hardest or the least desirable. Which means this, quitting is not an option simply because something This particular lesson was uh, not something I immediately thought of when I woke up, but it came shortly after. As I continued to ponder this first point in the state of affairs in respect to the end of Jesus' earthly ministry, the verse that kept popping up in my head was Luke twenty-two forty-two, 42. Luke chapter 22, verse 42. There in that verse we read Jesus' prayer to the Father in the Garden of Gethsemane. Father, if you are willing, remove this cup from me. Nevertheless, not my will, but yours be done. And here in this verse, we see not the pressure felt by the disciples during this time, but Jesus himself. Going forward with what was now the plan for accomplishing redemption was not easy for Jesus nor desirable So much so that he prays not only for strength, but as we see it here, another way. Father, if you are willing, remove this cup from me. There's got to be another way. Yet when it was confirmed that this was the only way, he conformed and complied. In other words, Jesus didn't bail because it was going to be hard or wouldn't feel good. He knew those weren't the things that determined something's worth or its correctness. Here before him was the most important and righteous task of all human history, the thing that would have the greatest impact not only on the life of others, i.e. their salvation, but also His own life. Philippians 2 says that because of His sacrifice, God exalted His name above every name. If this particular task would prove to be the most difficult thing Jesus had ever done, How often, beloved, do we consider that when it comes to the difficult things in our lives, those may be the most important things in our lives? How often do we think that way? Well, if I had to guess, not often enough. We live in a culture that tends to view difficult tasks or things as not worth the effort or as a sign that we're on the wrong path versus the right one. Yet once more, the lesson learned from the life and sacrificial death of Jesus is just the opposite. The most important things, the things which will have the greatest impact on your life and others, can be the hardest or the least desirable. And quitting is therefore not an option. Simply because it hurts. Simply because it hurts. Paul knew that. The Apostle Paul knew that in Speaks to it in Acts chapter 20, verse 23 to the Ephesian elders. Verse 23, he says, This the Holy Spirit testifies to me in every city that imprisonment and afflictions await me. Paul didn't quit just because it was going to be hard. And said, this was his resolve, the very next verse, verse 24. "I do not account my life or of any value, nor as precious to myself, if only I may finish my course, this afflictive, filled course, and the ministry that I have received from the Lord Jesus, to testify to the gospel of the grace of God. Paul understood that difficult things are often the most important things, the things that will have the greatest impact. Paul knew that and Jesus knew that. The question is, do we know that? More importantly, are we living that way? Or is our whole life about quitting when the going gets tough? I don't know about you, but I am so thankful that Paul didn't quit, and even more thankful that Jesus didn't quit. Think about, beloved, where we would be today if he did. That leads me then to our third, a third and final lesson this morning and why I originally thought of it for Easter. Dreaming about it and thinking about what it must have been like to be a disciple during that time, the lowest point in Christian history taught me and can teach all of us, Jesus did, number three, indeed rise from the dead. Jesus did indeed rise from the dead. Jesus did indeed rise from the dead. Not that uh, we didn't already know and believe this, but I believe that by considering... What it must have been like during the end of Jesus' ministry and at the time of his death offers the greatest proof that it did indeed take place. Why do I say that? Well, because of what we've already discussed. Given the feeling of utter failure and humiliation that would have followed his death, the resurrection would have been the only thing that could have kept these disciples going. What else could convince them? You say, well, they had uh, Jesus' ministry and its consistency with Scripture, yes. But that coupled with the seeming defeat at the cross and the rejection by the very community he came to save must have made them question everything. To start thinking, maybe maybe they were wrong. No doubt those were the kinds of thoughts rolling around in the disciples' brains. Again, I remember waking up and having a sense of that, but then also thinking of those Scriptures that support it. Most especially, Peter's triple denial of Jesus after his arrest. Matthew chapter 26. Matthew chapter 26. Verses 69 through 75 There we read, now Peter was sitting outside in the courtyard and a servant girl came up to him. This is after Jesus' arrest. He's taken, you may remember, to the house of Caiaphas, who was the father-in-law, or Annas rather, the father-in-law of Caiaphas, the high priest at that time. The servant girl came up to him and said, you also were with Jesus, the Galilean, But he, meaning Peter, denied it before them all, saying, I do not know what you mean. And when he went out to the entrance, another servant girl saw him, and she said to the bystanders, This man was with Jesus of Nazareth. And again he denied it with an oath, I do not know the man. After a little while, the bystanders came up and said to Peter, Certainly, too, you are one of them, for your accent betrays you. Then he began to invoke a curse on himself and to swear, I do not know the man. And immediately the rooster rooster crowed, and Peter remembered the saying of Jesus, before the rooster crows, you will deny me three times. And he went out, and he wept bitterly. Think about, just for a moment, what it is that we just read. From a A psychological or an emotional standpoint, Peter was one screwed-up individual. His feelings are telling him, based on everything that is currently going on, that he has followed the wrong guy. Everything is falling apart around him and inside of him. And so what does he do? He denies Jesus. He denies having anything to do with him. Then he remembers Jesus' words and his emotions are tossed in the opposite direction. He goes to weeping for what he's done. Peter was in a major tailspin and he didn't know how to pull out. It must have all seemed in that moment like a bad and very confusing dream, one where you are on the losing side no matter which side you choose. In relation to the rest of the disciples, minus John, Mark chapter 14 verse 50 says that immediately after Jesus' arrest, they, and I quote, all left him and fled. And where did they go? not to boldly proclaiming His name in the streets, but instead to hiding behind locked doors and fearing the Jews. This is where Jesus finds most of them after His resurrection. John chapter 20. John chapter 20, verses 19 and 20. On the evening of that day, the first day of the week, the doors being locked, where the disciples were for fear of the Jews, Jesus came and stood among them and said to them, Peace be with you. When he had said this, he showed them his hands and his side. Then the disciples were glad, kairos, when they saw the Lord. That term, We're glad kairos, the verbal form. Literally, they rejoiced. It's the same word that is used in Luke chapter 6, verse 23, where Jesus says, Rejoice, for your reward in heaven will be great. This is therefore more than simple happiness being expressed by the disciples upon now seeing Jesus. It is energy-producing elation. In that moment, these guys went from feeling like the world's biggest losers for believing in Jesus to feeling like they just won the world's biggest lotto. All of a sudden, the smallness of their numbers and the large size of the opposition that stood against them didn't matter because now they knew for sure they were standing in the right place. They were the ones the truth. And again, and again, if the resurrection hadn't happened, these guys had not witnessed it, not seen Jesus after he clearly had died, risen and standing before them, then there is no way they would have continued. Once more, imagine their situation. What things must have looked like and felt like when Jesus was arrested and everybody had turned against him. Most importantly, the Jewish community, which is the equivalent today of saying the entire Christian community. There was no way, in light of all of that, and who these guys were not, that they stayed the course unless this key event, this miracle of the resurrection, really did happen. No way they become the mighty gospel warriors they ended up being, unless Jesus did indeed rise from the dead, and they saw it with their own two eyes. They, to me, are therefore the greatest proof that it did happen change in their lives from wimps to warriors. That is proof enough for me and should be for you also. Why? Well, not only because it is the only reasonable conclusion that can be drawn uh, given their less than desirable circumstances, but because there's an even greater blessing promise to those who believe their testimony. John chapter 20 verse 29. Blessed are those who have not seen and yet believed. So then, beloved, who would have thought that the lowest point in all of Christian history would be the prelude to its greatest? Those are the things that I learned from this corny, silly dream and my time pondering on it, and I hope it's been a blessing to you. Jesus, our Savior, has risen, beloved. He has risen indeed. Let's pray. Father, thank you that we've had time to consider these historical events again. The lowest point there at our Savior's arrest, at our Lord's death, the things that they must have seen, the things that they must have felt, the words of others. Telling them that they were a cult, telling them that they were wrong. The feeling of smallness, the pressure, losing family, losing friends. Father, I pray that we keep that in mind and that to us it would be a blessing because of their testimony because of what they saw and the change we know that happened in their lives. The reason that Christianity exists today is because of that change. Father, I pray we remember those things. Lord, we're so thankful that you sent your Son. We're thankful for the things that have been written down to consider that we might know that the things we experience even now in this life, Lord, they've been experienced by others. Indeed, by your first disciples. We would keep that in mind. And as a result, we too would proclaim our Savior as risen, risen indeed. In Jesus' name I pray.